I am about to study the incorruptible, inerrant Word of God. I open my heart to God's message. I humble my mind to His wisdom, and I rest my hopes on His grace. I will accept its rebukes with repentance, rejoice in its truth by faith, and trust in its promises that can never fail. I can be what it says I can be, I can do what it says I can do, and I can change what it says I can change as I trust in His grace and Spirit. I covenant with God. You guys got it. To grow, and I am ready to change as I hide His Word in my heart and honor Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so grateful to be here today. Um, Before we jump into the message that I have prepared for you, uh, I do want to highlight a few things that have been going on in the student ministries. One in particular is we went to camp a few weeks ago. It was an awesome time. I think uh, some of the students are probably still recovering. I know that a lot of our adult leaders are still uh, recovering from that chaos. But what I'm really grateful and encouraged to share with you you is that we had five students make decisions to follow the Lord and put their faith in Him. And of those five, we had four follow the Lord in baptism. I think we might have a photo or two. I'm not sure yet if Grant has them. Uh, there's, there's some of the, the baptisms that we did. And uh, why don't you just roll through a few of the photos. There's Brent, and uh, he was kind enough to, to jump out in that water and be with a few of our students as they were being baptized. So isn't that wonderful? Can we give a, an applause for our students and for our God? I want to specifically thank you for praying for our youth. Um, we need it. We need it. And I don't, I don't say that because I think... Uh, <laughs> Our, our youth are so important, and they're going to be the ones that eventually pass, that we pass the baton to. So continue to pray for our students here. Well, I'm, as I said, I'm grateful to be here today with you, and it's always a privilege to be asked to deliver a sermon. Uh, but today I stand here both excited and a little nervous. You see, all week I've been working hard to produce what I felt would be an encouraging yet challenging message for us on the importance of focus and what it means to have a clear focus on God. Yet writing this message has been difficult and never seemed good enough. My words kept on failing me. And while it's frustrating to experience as if I had nothing to say when I was asked to have something to say, it caused me to go on my knees and seek the Lord out of desperation. Interesting how in life we typically are led to prayer, not when everything is going well, but when we are in a place of need. But here lies the problem for many of us. We can lose our focus when life is going to plan, when everything is working out the way that it should. We can lose our focus. When the bank account is moving in the right direction, when work is met with success and promotion, or when the family seems to be getting along, our focus and dependency on God can lessen. Yet it is when we lose our focus on God that we are most susceptible to creating catastrophe in our life and the lives of those around us. Why? Because our focus matters. 
which is why I, t- I titled today's message, When You Lose Your Focus. We'll, we will be looking at greatest's, uh, Israel's greatest king, David, a man known for his passion and focus on God, but at a critical time of his life, lost his focus and, as a result, wrecked havoc on his life and those around him. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We will be spending the bulk of our time there, but uh, we'll be jumping around a little bit. However, before we jump into God's word, uh, let, us, let us say a prayer. Would you bow with me? Ever-living God, who in your holy word taught us how to pray and give thanks. We come together as the church, your body, to seek your wisdom. Be present here today as we seek renewal for the mission of your church. Guide us to perceive what is right and grant each of us the courage to pursue it and the grace to accomplish it through Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us, Lord, understand what it means to have focus and a clear focus that is directed upon you and only you. I pray, Lord, that this service in its entirety would be a pleasing offering to you, Father. Help shape minds, help shape hearts, and help change the way we live so that we will not leave the way that we came. We ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everyone said... In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. These first few verses are the opening lines to what is perhaps the most infamous story in the entirety of Scripture. It is the story of David and Bathsheba, a tale of a man who lusted after someone else's wife, and because of it changed the trajectory of his life, his family, and the entire kingdom. But in order to appreciate this story, it is important for us to understand the context that led up to these events, specifically the person of David. David had very humble beginnings. He unfortunately was overlooked by his family, and as assignment, he was sent to a lowly position of managing the uh, the sheep as a shepherd, a low-class job that nobody wanted but was given to David. But from an early age, David had a tender heart that was deeply devoted to God. As a shepherd, he learned how to lead. When his sheep would go astray, he would do whatever it took to get them back into the fold. And when a lion or a bear would come to try to take one of the sheep, David would instantly go to the fight of it and rescue any of his flock. He was always willing to protect Despite what his family thought of him, and having many older brothers, God had big plans lined up for this unlikely hero. And through the prophet Samuel, David was anointed as the future king of Israel. Even as a young, boyish-looking teenager, he was able to defeat one of Israel's greatest foes, a man named Goliath. A giant who likely stood seven to nine feet tall, the average size 
of a living room ceiling. He developed a reputation for himself, though, as a mighty warrior. Scripture says that David would march out with the army and was successful in everything he was sent to do. Everything this this man touched worked out. David's focus on God brought him victory after victory after victory. And through his conquest, he was able to push Israel's borders farther than it had ever gone before. He would eventually assume the role as king over an entire nation. And while all of this sounds amazing, David's accolades as king live in the shadow of his focus and devotion to God. You see, what makes David great was not his skills as a fighter or even as a leader, but as someone who had complete focus on God. This focus and love for the Lord gained him a title as a man after God's own heart. What a wonderful way to be known as an individual who loves and focuses God on so much that God would say, you are a man or a woman after my own heart. This was the title given to David. Out of all the great men and women in Scripture, in biblical history, there is no other person given this title. It is unique to David and represents the servant heart that he had toward the Lord. David was focused. This leads me to my first point of four simple points that I will be making. Focus determines direction. Focus determines direction. This is why it is so important for us as individuals to consider what we are focusing our attention to because whatever we are focusing on is where we will go. David had a focus on God and because of that, he found himself in situations where God was with him and through that, he had victory. So his focus on God led him down paths where he saw blessing after blessing because he was in the near presence of the Lord. This isn't always the case, though. I'll never forget one particular experience in my life. It was just a few years ago in the spring of 2012 when I had graduated from my undergrad at a secular university. The president of the student body gave an address as he rallied up the audience over things like work, success, making a difference, all of which are things that are noble and virtuous that we should try to aim for. He said these words that are very telling of our present condition of our culture. That is what our society values. He said, never forget the most important person in your life. And he paused. And in his silence, I decided to be really disruptive. So I yelled out, Jesus! And everyone just ended up looking at me and laughing. And if you know my personality, then I always like a good joke. But what he said wasn't a joke, unfortunately. He finished his sentence after the pause was over, and he said, Never forget the most important person 
in your life. And he said, yourself. You are the most important person in your life. I remember looking around in shock, yet it seemed like no one had skipped a beat. I felt sick inside as I realized the baton of leadership was being handed down to my generation, a generation that believes the most important person in this world is ourselves. This is why I want you guys to pray for our students here at this church because there are some wonderful men and women that God is raising up, but there are so many other people who have twisted truth and have made the center of their their worlds themselves, and this is the kind of climate our students live in where everything is focused on me, 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 me. He could not have been more wrong. And it is this kind of thinking that cripples our families, our work, our lives, our society. When we focus on ourselves, it means that everything is eclipsed by our own needs and wants. All of a sudden, the appetite of what I want goes above what my spouse needs, what our children need, what our family needs, what our church needs, and most importantly, what our God wants of us. The lens of what I do and how I live are filtered through my own navel-gazing. And here lies the problem, church. Because our focus determines our direction, if we are focusing on the wrong object, then our direction of our life will go astray. It is no surprise that David's son, Solomon, would write these words in Proverbs 4.23, words that I think each of us should pay close attention to, especially if you are young. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Church, our heart matters. What we focus our affection on matters. Hear me well, if we are focused on money, then our lives will be directed in a way that we will go towards money. If it is on our career success, then we will live lives in such a way in order to obtain success. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when it is our primary focus, it becomes toxic. If all we desire is career success, then every choice will be weighed on whether or not it will result in the success of our career. So if the choice becomes loving your wife well or loving your children well, then you will choose work. You may be saying to yourself, of course I love God first and my family next, but too often I see the opposite. Sometimes we know what we should be doing, but our heart is far from what we know to be true. Oftentimes the furthest distance in life can be from the heart to the head. Did you hear that? Oftentimes, the furthest distance in life can be from the heart to the head. You must ask yourself if your actions in your heart are focused on God. If not, then what? If we're not careful, if we're not clear about what we are focusing our attention to, 
then we may not realize that the direction that we are heading towards, because our focus determines our direction, might be one that sends us off a cliff. That is the kind of focus that disrupts our lives and those around us. Now I get it, life isn't always black and white. There are circumstances like work that may call us away from our families or other duties that have been bestowed upon us that we need to attend to that might cause some conflict on where our attention needs to be. But there is a threshold that can be crossed when we favor our lives over our families. Or even worse, when we favor our lives over our God. Too many of us are trying to make a kingdom here on earth of our own instead of a kingdom of heaven. Let's go back to the passage, verse 1. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. This passage seems unassuming. But the author is trying to tell us something very, very important. David, in this moment, lost his focus. For whatever reason, he let his guard down, got comfortable with his success, and did not do what kings ought to be doing. He forsook his duties to go to war, and instead of seeing himself as a servant king appointed by God, he became a comfortable king. Please take note. This often happens to ourselves. Life is working out. Life is going in the right direction. And because of that, we become comfortable with ourselves. Because of that, we allow our focus to shift off of God and relax itself. But in doing that, we are about to set ourselves up for trouble. If you were to forget everything in this message, I hope that you would not forget what I'm about to tell you. So please, listen to these words well. Moral failure often comes at the intersection of success and blessing. Moral failure often comes at the intersection of success and blessing. When we are successful, it is easy for us to think that it came from ourselves, that somehow we were responsible for our success, and that any decision we will make will be a good decision. After all, how can it go wrong? Everything has worked so far. And it is in this crossroad of seeing blessing in our life and seeing success that we can set ourselves up for failure. The famed author and apologist Ravi Zacharias puts it this way, more people fail in catastrophic proportions, not when they are in the valley of struggle, but when they are riding the crest of success. 
You see, sin is wrapped up in the struggle to believe that God's ways are better than our own. We want to believe that somehow the decision that we are going to make for our life will be the best decision. That somehow the choice that we have is the better choice when compared to the choice that God has for us. And that has been our struggle from the start. That is what Adam and Eve struggled with when they looked at the fruit. They saw it and they thought it was what? Good for them to eat. And because they believed the lie that their decision would be better than God's decision, it set humanity astray. And in a similar way, when we start to question God's decisions for our lives, it sets our hearts astray. When we are riding the crest of success, we can easily forget that it was God's hand that brought us there and not our own. If you have been given good things in this life, take note of them. Take note of your children. Take note of your family, of your spouse, of any blessing that you have, and thank the Lord for it. Realize that it is his good hand that brings us these gifts, that they truly are gifts, that if left to our own, we don't deserve the good things that we have, but that we are truly given it by God's grace and thank him for it. Ask him to continue to keep your heart focused on him and pray that you do not become too comfortable Now, this is a hard prayer. It's hard to ask God to not allow yourself to be comfortable, or at least too comfortable. However, we must remember our mission as a church. That is, as Christians, our primary goal in life is to lovingly advance God's kingdom through the gospel of Christ. All matters of life need to be focused on this. This is the key church, to not only living a life that is pleasing to the Lord, but also living a life that you will be satisfied with. Far too often I have come into contact with individuals who have all the success, but no direction. Pretty soon they realize that the things that they have accomplished have no great value, but often it comes too late. They realize it when all has almost been lost. And this is because deep down inside, our hearts long to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Our hearts long to be be able to find meaning in God and his work. This is why as a church, we are so adamant about us living on mission. This is why we want this church to be known for going out and bringing the gospel to other places. Because we realize that if you are doing this, if I am doing this, I will live a better life. I will live a life that is not only good, but is satisfying. St. Augustine says these words that I'm often reminded of and try to think of often. Our hearts are restless until it rests in you. Meaning our, until our hearts are focused on God, until our hearts are resting on God, until our hearts are in a place where God is there, we cannot find true peace 
and rest. This leads me to my second point. Temptation comes when we turn our focus away from God. Temptation comes when we turn our focus away from God. David's absence from battle was not necessarily a sin. It just wasn't the best choice of his life. Similarly, not everything that we do is necessarily a sin, but it may not be the best choice for our life. This is why scripture tells us that things may be permissible, but not all things are beneficial. We need to be thinking about the way that we are living because there are things that we might be indulging in that might not be a sin, but it might not be where God wants us to be. So David, being in a place where God did not want him to be, ends up walking on his balcony or on his roof. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Very rarely does scripture say a woman was very beautiful, which means that Bathsheba was stunning. Yet regardless of her beauty, David had two options. Option one, look the other way and get his focus back on God. Or option two, let his eyes linger. David let his eyes linger. And because David wasn't focusing on God and being the servant king, he placed himself in a situation that he would easily be tempted in. I like this quote from Henry Nouwen. He says, To live a disciplined life is to live in such a way that you want only to be where God is with you. The more deeply you live your spiritual life, the easier it will be to discern the difference between living with God and living without God. And the easier it will be to move away from the places where God is no longer with you. If our eyes are not focused on God, then we run the risk of going astray. David gave into his temptation because he lost his focus. Had he gone to war, he would never have been in this situation. But the enemy tempted David in the one area he was weak in, women. By now, David had already taken several wives and concubines, and while you think it would have been enough, having more women and sexual partners does not satisfy sexual appetite, but it ignites it. He believed the lie that so many in our culture believe that stolen waters are sweeter. Yet if you engage with our society, it tries to sell the lie that giving into our sexual desires will satisfy our appetite. That if somehow we give into this indulgence, we'll be satisfied and then we'll be able to move on. Just give in. Just do it. You only live once. These are the lies of our society. But if anything, 
if anything is outside of God's created order, it will always leave you empty. It's only in the presence of the Lord in his created order that we can find true satisfaction, that we can move from emptiness and into abundance. You see, I'm often met with people who think that Christianity is just a whole bunch of rules. That God doesn't want people to have fun. That we need to be able to live a little. Now, there are some people out there who would make it seem like God doesn't want people to have fun, but that is just not true. God invented fun. God invented pleasure. God invented all things that are good. And it, when we start to look at, but when we start to look at his law, his moral order, or his plan for our lives as the very thing that we don't want, then we move away from being able to experience his abundance and move to a place of emptiness, a desert. You see, God loves us, so he gives us his law. He loves us, so he gives us a plan so that we can find satisfaction, so we can know what it's like to live a good life. This is why it's so important to have every single area of our lives in check. Unfortunately for David, as well as his sons that followed him, this was the doorway that Satan used to cause destruction in his family. Satan continued to use women as a way to bring David's family down. And I think it is important if there are parents in the room or expecting parents to realize that your children are looking at you, that your struggles will oftentimes become their struggles, which is why it is so important to bring all matters, all things, and keep our focus on the Lord so that we can help our children along. Had David gotten this area in check in his life, it is likely that his sons wouldn't have fallen into the same temptation. But he didn't. You need to ask yourself, is there a doorway in your life that is open? One that the enemy is using to get to you and your family? If so, give it to the Lord. And allow him to close it. Verse 3. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself for her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. Tragic. David basically just used her and sent her away. And if you were to continue to read on, you would read a story of his son doing the same thing, using a woman and sending her away. Scripture goes to great length to be clear that David violated Bathsheba's marriage bed. 
Though Bathsheba was beautiful, it would have been wrong to assume that she was at fault. David's palace would have stood above the entire city. He would have had the vantage point of looking down at every single home. And Bathsheba was likely in the middle of her house, where in Israelite homes, they usually had a courtyard. And because they didn't have indoor uh, plumbing, and because she was trying to follow God's law by cleaning herself, she would have been an open view for David to see. But it wasn't her fault. She was actually trying to do the Lord's will. Scripture also goes to great length to offer dignity to Uriah. By regularly referring to Bathsheba as his wife, it constantly says, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah. Because Scripture wanted to be clear that what David did was wrong. Which is amazing because you rarely see this in histories. At least, not always in religious histories, but you see it in Scripture. That Scripture is brutally honest with the heroes of the faith that it would be so honest to even show the greatest king of Israel making a huge mistake. You see, David broke God's word and took something that was not his own. In a similar way, when we sin, we are trying to indulge in something that is not our own. We need to come to a place where we can say no. When temptation is knocking, we must place our focus on God. Now, sometimes... This isn't always easy. But if we are to live a life that pleases the Lord, then it's worth it. Some time went by, and you could almost imagine David pushing the situation to the back of his mind until Bathsheba sends word to David saying, I'm pregnant. The reality of the situation hits David, so he designs a plot to cover it up. He calls for his commander, Joab, to send Uriah to him in order to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. He figures if he comes home, he will sleep with her, and he won't be the wiser. But Uriah is a faithful servant to David and to Israel. He consecrated himself for battle and believes that his righteousness, his ability to win the war, is dependent upon him just as much as it's dependent upon anyone else. And he nobly sets aside his desires and tells David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my home to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, pointing to David, I will not do such a thing. What an amazing man. What a man that was focused on the Lord. He believed in his mission. He knew that his mission was dependent upon his focus. So sadly, David tries one more time by getting Uriah drunk, but his will cannot be broken. Yet what is more tragic of, to the story is that Uriah, a faithful servant to Israel, is not even actually a Jew by birth. 
He is a foreigner who had devoted himself to the Lord and in many ways represents what God wanted Israel to be for other people, a place that could offer that others could be a part of. Yet this man who made a choice to love his country that he was not originally a part of is given a letter by the king. When David realizes there's nothing that he can do to change Uriah's will, he gives him a letter. And inside that letter are orders for him to go to Joab and read the letter to which it says, send Uriah in the heat of battle and then pull all your men away from it so that he will be struck down. How terrible. How terrible for a king to do this to one of his most faithful servants. But this is what happens when we sin and try to cover it up. The stakes always get higher and higher and higher. What started off with a king not going to war became lustful thoughts to another woman. Then it was lustful thoughts for another man's wife. Then it was adultery. Then deception. Then trying to get somebody drunk. Then murder. And not only the murder of Uriah, but the death of good men that Joab had to send into battle in order to ensure Uriah's death. Sin always escalates, which is why we must be careful to not hide our sins, but confess it. The most devastating thing that we can do in our lives is try to cover up our sins because the stakes are only going to get higher. There is one thing that David did. He just didn't go to war. And all of this snowballed. And so often it happens with our own lives. David's focus on the Lord was lost. And at this point, he was consumed with not allowing his reputation to be squandered and his sin to be known. Eric Little, the famed Olympian and former missionary to China who gave his life during World War II to the cause of Christ and was known for being an incredible athlete his story was, part of his story was depicted in one of my favorite movies, Chariots of Fire. Once gave a message on sincerity. He told the story of sculptors in ancient Rome with less than reputable standards. You see, the sculptors would go and try to make a beautiful sculpture of an item or a person. And as they were doing it, they would maybe make a mistake, a chip here, a mark there, a defect and in realizing their mistake and their need to present their work, they would take wax and they would use the wax to cover up all the defects. And then they would carry in their work and it would look as if it was perfect and beautiful and without fault. But eventually, the wax would melt in the heat of day and you would see the statue for what it was. 
you would realize all of the defects, all of the blemishes, and the work was revealed. Eric Little said these words, if we allow cracks and blemishes to appear in our faith and then ignore them or attempt to cover them up, we aren't being truly sincere. We must strive to make our faith the perfect work. We are the sincere we, we are then sincere to ourselves and sincere to God. You see, God can fill in those cracks. God can fill in those blemishes in ways that when tested by the fire, it'll remain pure, it'll remain beautiful. But in order for that to happen, we need to keep our focus on him. Amen? Try as we might, we cannot hide our sins from God. Sin always makes its mark. This is my third point. After Uriah's death, David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, and she bears him a son. Yet shortly after, Nathan, the prophet of Israel at the time, visits David and tells him of a story of two men, one rich, the other poor. The one who was rich had a large number of sheep and cattle, and the poor man had only one little lamb, one little female lamb. The poor man, even with this one lamb, loved the lamb as if it was his own child. It shared his food with the lamb. It allowed the lamb to drink from his own cup and even slept with the lamb in his arms. But when, the tra- when a traveler had came into town and it was required of the rich man to host and prepare a meal for this traveler, he looked at all of his lambs and his sheep and his cattle and he decided that he didn't want to take from what he had. So he goes and sneaks in and steals the one lamb that the poor man had. The one lamb that was like a daughter to him. David, hearing this story, immediately starts to burn with anger upon hearing it. And starts to proclaim that justice needs to be served. Yet to his surprise, Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. You are that man that stole that poor man's sheep. You had it all, and yet you took from someone else. And though he thought he had got away with it, David could not hide his sins from God. He didn't want his kingdom, his Lord, or anyone else to know Yet the situation had the opposite effect. God says to David, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And says, you did it in secret, David, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. They'll know your sin. See, sin always makes its mark. 
And there's typically two results from every single sin. One, it separates us from God. And two, it produces evil effects in this world. If you try to hide your sin, you are only fooling yourself. It will eventually be exposed because sin has natural consequences. In a similar way, if you eat healthy, exercise, and do what's right, your body will start to take on a certain shape. Well, in a similar way, if you are full of sin and you're just trying to hide your sin, your life will take on a similar shape. We have to understand that sin always leads to death. This is why God so desperately wants to, us to know that he, that he loves us. Because he knows that his ways will lead us to a life marked by joy, by peace, by self-control, and by goodness. One, focus determines direction. Two, temptation comes when we turn our focus from God. Three, sin will always make its mark. And finally, four, God is the only one who could deal with our sin. You see, these events crippled David, his family, and his kingdom. Yet despite these hard consequences that he would face, God still had a plan for him. God still wanted to bless him. God still wanted to be able to prove himself faithful to David. Yes, the sin had consequences, but God's love was still there. Listen to these words from David from Psalm 51 as he writes about and reflects on this present situation. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge." Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You have to hear that. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. You know he's thinking about Uriah when he writes that. You who are my God and my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt, burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. 
You see, David knew because he was close to the heart of God that his actions, that he could not bring anything to the altar, that even though he lived in a time and a system where people paid for the penalty of sin through offering sacrifices, he realized that what God really wanted was his heart. What God really wanted was his attention, was his focus. And in a similar way, God wants our heart. God wants our attention. God wants our focus. And if we are able to give it to him, then we're able to live a life worthy of his gospel. You see, one of the most beautiful things that happened to me when I became a Christian was I started to realize that the person that God was making me into was the person that I wanted to be all along. And that is the lie that Satan oftentimes tries to take away from us. He tries to make it seem as if If you live for God, you're not going to enjoy yourself. If you live for God, you're going to miss out. You're not going to be who you really want to be. But in reality, when we live for God, when we surrender our will to him, we start to become the person that God wants us to be. And I'm believing that for many of you, that if you want to feel as if you are who God wanted you to be, then set your focus on him. Amen. David acknowledged his sin and was immediately forgiven. There was unavoidable consequences to his actions, yes, but there was also God's grace. And this is where we can find our hope, church. God offers us his grace. Even when we lose focus in life, God is always drawing us back. David sinned, yet God still blessed his life in many other ways. And perhaps the biggest blessing of all is from David's lineage. That despite his sin, God chose his family with all of its blemishes, with all of its mistakes, with all of its sin after generation and after generation, God still chose his family to be the family that would bring about Christ. What a picture of how God takes broken, weak things and uses it for great ends. This is the gospel That God is able to make something beautiful of us regardless of our past. And he wants to do that for you. God is calling us to focus on him so that our passions can be restored. God is calling us to focus on him so that our families can be restored. God is calling us to focus on him so that our relationships can be restored. Our marriages, our hopes, our dreams. And God is calling us to focus on him so that our destiny can be restored. Now, some of you may be thinking, but you don't know my struggle. You have no idea the kinds of things I deal with. And you know what? You're right. I don't. But Jesus does. Hebrews 2.18 says this, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
One of the most amazing aspects about Christianity is that we have a God who can relate to our suffering and our temptation. I don't think people realize this enough. There is no other religion out there, no other worldview out there where the creator of the heavens and the earth, the person who put the planet in motions, who spoke and so it was, literally comes down into this earth to live a life like us, to be tempted, to be spit on, to be broken, and who can relate in our temptation, who can relate in our struggle, who can literally say, I know, I know. Yeah, there was a time in my life where I didn't want to do that either. There was a time in my life where I prayed, Lord, take this cup from me, but keep on going. Keep on going. I promise it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. Focus on him. Focus on God. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. There is no other religion, no other faith that can say the same. We have a God who truly loves and wants to rescue us from this world of temptation and pain who looks into our situation and makes a way. And this should bring us to a deep sense of hope, the kind of hope that causes us to focus on him and only him. Church, I I hope you heard my, my words well. I hope I didn't muddy anything up for you. I hope you realize that God wants us to focus on him because when we are focused on him, then we can be satisfied. We can experience goodness. Chances are there are a few of you here who haven't had a focus on God, who have maybe focused on other things. You know what those other things are. Chances are there are some of you here who claim the name of Christ, but life one way or another, has caused you to lose your focus. Maybe Satan has gone through that one door that you know is open and has continuously taken your mind and your attention off of him. There is no better day than today to say, Lord, I want to focus on you. Lord, I want to look to you. Lord, I want you to be the one I pay attention to not the other things in this life, not the things that end up leading to death, but you. Let me give you a promise, because it comes from scripture. It's seen throughout its pages, that when you focus on God, other things come into alignment. All of a sudden, we can make sense of how to lead lead in our workplaces, to lead in our families, All things come into alignment when we focus on God. 